Matthew chapter 18, like Chad said. When you get it, say, got it. If you have a Bible, you should bring it on Sundays. If you don't, we'll give one to you. All right, today we are talking about forgiving people. And this is a big subject, so we're not going to be able to cover everything there is to say on the subject. But I do want to refer you to a resource. Uh, Oh, a little over a year ago, we did a two-part series on forgiving others. So if today maybe some questions come up or you're like, man, I'm really having a hard time with this and I just need more uh, go to realityventura.com and in the little search box right on the homepage there, just search forgiving others. And there will be two sermons that come up um, that were like an hour long each. So it's like two hours of content talking about how, how do we do this? What does this mean? All right. Matthew chapter 18. We're starting in verse 21. And I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible this morning. Starting in verse 21. Then Peter came and said to him, that is Jesus, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought before him. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold, along with his wife and children, and all that he had, and repayment to be made. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you. But he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, They were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Lord, forgiveness is at the heart of who you are. It's one of the things that you declare about yourself. You say, I am a forgiving God, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin from generation to generation. And we have been forgiven by you. And so today, Lord, I would ask that you would open our eyes and open the eyes of our understanding to see just how much we have been forgiven. That we might then respond, not like this slave did in the story, but rather in response to how you have responded to us by forgiving us. That we would respond just like that in forgiving others. But Lord... 
we need you to open our eyes. We ask that you would open our eyes and you would open our ears today. And that those here today who are walking in unforgiveness and bound up in that bitterness, that they would be set free. Our ears are open to hear. Our eyes are open to see, Lord. Amen. The title of this sermon is, are you guys with me? Did you say amen? Okay. The title of this sermon is, Because You Have Been Forgiven. On the heels of Jesus teaching his disciples about how to deal with a brother or sister who is in sin, that was in verses 15 through 20, Peter then asks kind of a clarifying question. Right? The paraphrase is, okay, Lord, but what happens if someone sins against me, if this person who sins against me keeps on sinning against me? How many times do I need to forgive them? In other words, I hear what you're saying about confronting them for the purpose of them repenting. I hear what you're saying about trying to get them to act in a righteous way in response to their sin. But what about me? How am I supposed to act in response to their sin? And Peter comes up with a seemingly pretty good answer to his own question, right? He says to Jesus in verse 21, Lord, here's the question, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? And then his answer, up to seven times? Like, all right, Lord, I get it. This isn't the first time you've talked to us about this. This forgiving others thing is a big deal. So here's what I'm going to do. It's like, here's what I'm prepared to do, Lord. You can almost see him like, hey, you guys, you guys listening? You guys listening right now? What if I, listen, what if I forgave my brother seven times? <laughs> oh, right? Like you, if he was holding the microphone, that's where he would drop it. What if I forgave my brother seven times? Now, for some of us, that doesn't seem like a whole lot of times. So for some of us, that seems like an eternity of times, right? For some of us, it doesn't seem like a whole lot of times to forgive somebody for the same offense. But to a first century Jew, in first century Judaism, rabbis were teaching that forgiving someone more than three times was totally unnecessary. They said that because God in Amos chapter 1 forgave Israel's enemies three times, and then after that punished them, that it was unnecessary for people to forgive more than three times. How, and you could forgive them three times, then after that just like wash your hands of them. And so Peter, in his mind, I imagine, is probably thinking that he's kind of killing it here, right? He's like, dude, I'm going to up the ante like crazy. The rabbis, the religious teachers are saying three times, Lord, here's what I'm prepared to do. I'm going to double the quota and add one just for good measure. But Jesus doesn't respond to Peter like I imagine Peter thought he would have. Instead of affirming this seemingly outlandishly gracious offer of forgiving people seven times, Jesus responds to Peter in verse 22 by saying, no, Peter, I don't, I don't say to you up to seven times, but 70 times seven times. Now, does anybody's translation that they're looking at say something different than 70 times 7? What does yours say, Jeremy? 77 times. A couple translations. The ESV, I think maybe the NIV, say 77 times. The NASB, though, says 70 times 7. So which one is it? 
Right? Because some of y'all are like, yo, dude, I need to know. Because 77 is a lot easier to do than 490. So which one is it? And, and does it matter? No, I don't think that it matters. As we'll see in this parable, this isn't about a forgiving others quota that once we meet it, we're free to stop forgiving people. This is about how freely we have been forgiven. Unlimitedly. Is that a word? And because of that, how freely we ought to forgive. Jesus is saying, Peter, you're a child of God. You are an image bearer of God. And part of who God is, is he is a forgiving God. And so that is part of what it means to be a child of God. Peter, this is part of what it means to follow me. As human beings, we were created in the image of God. And God has given us the ability, and as followers of Jesus, the command to forgive others. Ephesians 4.32 says, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ forgave you. Guys, showing mercy and forgiveness to others is part of what we were designed, commanded, and empowered to do. Here's my question. If this is part of what God wrote into the fabric of us as human beings, and then part of what he commands us to do as Christians, and what he empowers us to do, then why is it so stinking hard to forgive others? I mean, right? Having mercy on people who have sinned against us, extending forgiveness, releasing people from their debts that they have accrued, and then doing it again and again and again. This is really, really hard work. And I think it has to be a supernatural thing. I think it has to come from God. And it has to come from a right understanding of God and a right understanding of our standing before God. True mercy and forgiveness only comes from a right understanding of God and a right understanding of our standing before God. And maybe that's where things go awry. Maybe forgiving others seems so difficult at times because we can't see that. Maybe forgiving others is so hard sometimes because we have lost sight of just how much we have been forgiven by God. And maybe Jesus here in Matthew chapter 18 knows something that we don't. Namely, that our lack of forgiveness is not a laziness issue or a result of too little practice. Our lack of forgiveness is an optical issue. It is a result of us not seeing properly ourselves for just how depraved and guilty we are apart from Christ and how insanely merciful God has been toward us. The problem is we have absolutely no clue how much we have been forgiven by God. Or if we do, we've lost sight of it. The problem is we're not seeing clearly. And that was Peter's problem. He couldn't see and Jesus here isn't trying to give him new glasses. He's trying to give him new eyes. He's not trying to teach Peter how he ought to forgive others. He's trying to show Peter how much he has already been forgiven. That is the key. 
The key to forgiving people isn't trying harder or doing better. The key is realizing just how much we have been forgiven by God. Again, Ephesians 4.32, what it's saying is, man, because you've been forgiven. Christian, you have been forgiven because you've been forgiven. Go therefore now. And just as you have been forgiven, go therefore and you forgive. And that is what I hope and pray our eyes will be open to see today. I'm praying that God would open the eyes of our understanding to even kind of just even a little bit comprehend just how much we have been forgiven. And to be able to just even kind of a little bit comprehend what that then says about God and who we are in God. And then I pray and hope that that would inform how we think and feel about how we ought to respond to those around us who are in need of our mercy and our forgiveness. And it is to this end that Jesus, as he often did, tells Peter a story. It's a parable, really. A parable is a simple story used to illustrate a moral or spiritual lesson. A simple story used to illustrate a moral or spiritual lesson. And in this parable, God is represented by a king. We are represented by this first slave who has this insane debt to the king. And then those around us are represented by the other slave who owes this slave a debt. And so we see in verses 23 through 27, in the first part of this parable, that you've got this king, right? He is his majesty. He is the king. And he's got a slave who has got himself into some serious debt. It says in verse 24 that he owed the king 10,000 talents. Now, most of us probably aren't familiar with uh, this term talent, right? So here's what it is. A talent is a unit of measurement used for weighing metal or gold. One talent was 20 years of wages. One talent equaled 20 years of wages. To put it into some United States of America context, the U.S. median household right now in the United States is $51,000. So one talent, which is 20 years wages, would have been 20 years times 51,000, the equivalent of $1,020,000. One talent, million bucks. But this dude... Oh, 10,000 talents. 10,000 talents would be equal to $10,200,000,000. I imagine that Peter had never even heard of this number before. There was no Google in the first century where you could like see how much wealthy people made. Right? Like a king or whatever. You had no, you just knew he was rich. You didn't know like what numbers. Right? There was no numbers. This is like an unfathomable number. $10 billion, 10,000 talents. Needless to say, this dude is underwater. He is in debt. I've been in debt before. It's terrible. It's suffocating. One of our debts one time took four or five years to pay off before we were finally free of it. But you know, we paid it off and we felt amazing. Some of you guys have been in debt before. You know the feeling of paying off debt. But this dude, this dude is on a different planet with his debt. This dude's debt wouldn't take four or five years to pay off. It would have taken four or five lifetimes to pay off. And I think it's noteworthy that the king was going to sell him. He said, sell him. But even if he sold him, he would have still had to pay off his debt. In other words, even this man's life 
was not worth enough to pay off his debt. And as a side note, none of our lives are worth enough to pay off our debt. Only the life of Jesus can pay off our debt. So this dude's got this massive debt, right? $10 billion. Jesus says 10,000 talents. Why does Jesus use this number, 10,000 talents? Is there something significant about this number? No, the significance is the sheer epicness of the number. I think that Peter is like, throws out a number, right? He's like, yo, what about seven? And Jesus is like, oh, you want to talk numbers? Okay, well, how about this number? How about a debt that is so great that if you gave every penny of your income for the rest of your life, that you wouldn't even put a dent in it? The point that Jesus is trying to make here is this slave owed a debt that was impossible to ever pay back. And such is the case with God. Remember, who represents, who is represented by the king in this story? Y'all, come on. Who is represented by the king in this story? God, there we go. And who is represented by this slave? Us. That's right, us. Remember, we are the ones in this story that Jesus is talking about. We are the ones that have this unfathomable debt that is owed, unfathomable debt that is owed to God. But it's not a financial debt that we owe. You remember that I said parables are stories used to illustrate moral or spiritual truths. Jesus is using a king to represent God, a slave to represent us, and an insurmountable financial debt owed to a king to represent an insurmountable moral debt owed to God. The Bible says that all of us have sinned, that we have all sinned, that there is not one of us who is righteous, not a single one. That we are all born with this disease, this spiritual disease called sin, and then a moral bent toward it. And that then we act on that moral bent, and we act in sinful ways. We do sinful things. Now, some of y'all are pretty good people, right? Like, you feel pretty good, and so it's hard to hear that. But when you look at the righteous law of God and compare it to yourself— then you begin to see just how far from it you really are. You begin to see just how far from the mark you really are. And what's the mark? Well, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 that the mark was, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Perfection. That's the mark. Perfection? Like, like God? Why would Jesus say such a thing? It's impossible. It's it's. Stupid. It's impossible. What's the reason for giving a command that is impossible to keep? Well, it's the same reason that God gave a law to Israel that was impossible to keep. Galatians 3.24 says that the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ. The law was given to teach us, to tutor us, to teach us how guilty we are in order to show us how much we need a Savior. Now, immediately some of you are thinking, okay, dude, yeah, I get it. I'm not perfect. I'm sure I'm guilty of breaking God's law in some way. But come on, man, I'm not that bad. Surely I haven't racked up so much moral debt before God that it is insurmountable. I mean, dude, there's people who are way worse than me. In fact, the people that I'm having a hard time forgiving, those people 
are way worse against me, or way worse than me. Surely my sin against God isn't as offensive as their sin is against me. And I understand that logic. I really do. And it appears to make some sense. But we have to remember two things here. First of all, all sin is an offense to and ultimately a sin against God. That means that even though you may sin against a person or against yourself or that you may sin in secret, ultimately it is sin against God. King David knew this, right? You remember in uh, 2 Samuel when he commits adultery with Bathsheba and then she gets pregnant. David freaks out and goes and has her, her husband murdered, basically, who's out at war. He, like, deceives the whole nation, man. He, so he sinned against his family, right? His sin was against his family, if we were being technical. It was against Bathsheba. It was against her husband. His name was Uriah. And it was against the nation of Israel. But do you know what David says when he finally repents and he finally acknowledges his sin? In Psalm 51, he says to God, Lord, against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. Let me say it a different way. If someone commits a crime, the person who the crime was against is not the one who actually punishes the criminal. Only the state can legally hand out punishment. It is the law that judges a person guilty or innocent, not the victim, because it is the law that was violated. Regardless of the worthiness or innocence of the victim, all crimes are ultimately committed against the established law. If you rob your neighbor's house, yes, obviously you have wronged your neighbor. But it is not them who holds you accountable. It is the higher law that holds you accountable. In the same way, all moral law begins and ends with God. And all moral failure, the Bible calls it sin, is ultimately against God, the one who wrote the law and who ultimately has the authority to judge according to the law. That means then that every single little tiny thing we have ever done to break God's law, every little lie, every little manipulation, every time you took advantage of someone, every greedy, lustful, self-seeking thought, every selfish motive, And like James 4 says, not just the wrong things that we have done, but the right things that we refuse to do, all of it, every single little hidden or public moral hiccup is ultimately sin against and an offense to God. So yeah, maybe you feel like, man, I don't sin that much. Maybe you feel like you're not that bad. You're not that guilty. But I have to tell you, before God, you really are. And every time we sin, we add to the tally against us in heaven. Paul in Romans 2, when he's talking to some people who wouldn't stop sinning, says, Because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath. When someone sins against you, it may be um, really offensive. It may be really hurtful or painful, may even be destructive. I get it. I am preaching to myself right now. And I, I, I feel with you the weight of this. But what Jesus is saying is that the offense of people's sin against us, as we'll see in the next part of this parable, 
will never compare to the offense of our sin against God. The second thing we have to remember is this. God doesn't grade on a curve. We grade on a curve. We rank sin on a sliding sliding scale from tolerable to unpardonable. But God does not see like that. Sure, there are different consequences for different actions. But before God, sin is sin. And even our most beautiful presentation of morality is like a mud pie before God. Not like the actual mud pie, like a pie made out of dirt. Before God, man, it's like a pie of dirt. It's like a dirt pie. God is not moved by our attempts at morality. In fact, Isaiah 64 says that all of us have become like one who is unclean. And all of our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. Literally, the actual Hebrew words say, like a menstrual rag. Even our most righteous deeds are like soiled garments before God. So yeah, on our sliding scale, our sin may not weigh as heavy as the committed sins, as sins committed against us. But what Jesus is saying is actually, you have no clue just how offensive your sin is to God. You have no clue just how guilty you are and how in debt you are before God. And we don't. I don't think we have any clue, and neither did Peter. And that is why Jesus is telling this story. He's like, Peter, you're the slave, dude. You're the slave in this story, and you have no clue how indebted you are. Romans 3.23 says that we have all sinned and fallen short of God's perfect standard. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. Friends, God has this perfect moral standard, and you don't meet it. And I'm sorry, for some of you who uh, really pride yourself on performing well, I know that's hard for you to hear. But you have to hear this. Hear me. You've fallen short. You're guilty. You're condemned. And like it says about this slave in verse 25, you don't have the means to pay off your debt. Even your righteous deeds are like filthy rags. Listen to me. Let this sink in. This has to sink in before we go any further. You do not have the means and will never be able to pay off your moral debt owed to God. Never. But the story, see how it's big? The story, <laughs> my son started singing, I like big butts and I cannot lie to you. He's four years old. I don't even know where he heard this song. So, but in this case, I, will, I like big butts, B-U-T. This is a big butt. But the story does not stop there. Because God looks at you and just like this king looked at his slave in verse 27, he has compassion on you. And he forgives you everything you owe. You know why Jesus came? To pay off your debt. To pay off your debt. God sits in the judgment seat of the courtroom of heaven. 
and looks at your massive debt and depravity and says, guilty. You're guilty. And you do not have the means to pay off your debt. And then he looks at his son and he says, but you do. Are are you willing to pay off their debt? And Jesus stands up in the courtroom of heaven and says, Father, you're right. They don't have the means, but I do and I will. God loved you so much that he sent Jesus to pay your debt so that you would not be judged and perish, but rather receive mercy and have everlasting life. And it's done. It is done. You you have been forgiven. Your debt has been forgiven. Colossians 2 says that the handwriting of requirements that was against you has been erased. And just like the king in this story, the king of heaven says to you, your debt is forgiven. You are forgiven. You are free. This is unbelievable mercy, right? This is unbelievable love. Do we, I mean, the insanity of this. We are the slave in this story. We cannot ever pay back our debt, even with our own life. We can never pay back our debt that our sin has earned us before God. Never, ever. And God, through Jesus, says, but I'll pay it. And he clears us of it all. That is how God has responded to us sinning against him. Guys, let's just, just for a minute, trip out and just try to comprehend how gnarly this is. I, I don't know that we will ever understand, but goodness, it's amazing. And the command of the Christian is, because you have been forgiven, so now then you ought to go and forgive. But the tragedy is, many of us are just like the slave in this story. We have been released from such a great debt and yet we refuse to release those who have sinned against us. We come to the king, we repent, we ask God to forgive us, and he does. But we must lose sight of it because the moment that somebody then comes to us, sins against us, we throw it out the window and we do exactly what this slave did. This slave has this almost incomprehensible Debt of over $10 billion. I mean, a number you can't, Peter couldn't even imagine. And the king has compassion on him and forgives his debt. And then it says in verse 28 that this forgiven slave goes and finds one of his fellow slaves who owes him 100 denarii. And he seizes him and begins to choke him saying, pay me what you owe. 100 denarii. This dude owes him a hundred denarii. To give us, again, a little bit of context, a hundred denarius is about 150 bucks. So a hundred denarii is about $15,000. Now, $15,000, it's like no small deal, right? Like if you lose $15,000 or somebody takes $15,000 from you, you're sad. You're sad about that. I, I get it. This, that still is terrible. But to put it into our modern day context, $15,000 is about three and a half months wages. $10 billion is about 200,000 years of wages. This guy owed him three and a half months wages. That's significant. But he owed the king 200,000 years of wages. Listen, I'm not trying to minimize 
the offenses against you. Those things are real. The hurt and the scars from those things that are done to you, those are real. The negative impact that those things have had or are having on you, those are real. And for the future sins that will be done against you, the future offensive, those things, the impact, the detrimental effects that those things will have are legitimate. Three and a half months wages is no joke. But in light of how much we have been forgiven, we have no right to not forgive those who have sinned against us. We have no right. But I am with you. This is hard. This is hard work. It is hard work. And it's going to require some kind of sacrifice. In fact, forgiving others always requires a sacrifice. Remember the cross? Remember how Jesus before the cross was like, Father, if there's any other way for them to be forgiven, please let's do that. He knew how gnarly it was going to be. He knew how much it was going to cost. He knew what a sacrifice it was going to be. But there wasn't another way. The forgiveness of our sins required the sacrifice of Jesus. And with us, it is no different. Forgiving others will always require some kind of sacrifice. Something. It's going to be different in every case, right? It might require uh, you sacrificing an entitlement that you feel. A right that you feel. It might, it, might, it might require you sacrificing some comfort. It might require you sacrificing your pride. Maybe it's, it's sacrificing giving up the releasing of uh, a grudge or like some kind of resentment. Forgiving others will always require something as it did with the father when he gave his son, required him his son. And with the son when he gave his life, required his life. And so to forgive others just as we have been forgiven means that we are willing to sacrifice some things in order to release others from their debts against us. Forgiving people like God has, for been, uh, like God has forgiven us also means that we forgive without prejudice. In other words, we don't get to pick and choose which sins we will or will not forgive. Because that's the way that God has forgiven us, right? Again, with God, there's no sliding scale. And you see that when you look at the Bible, you see like a woman caught in adultery. Then you see like the thief on the cross. And then you see a rich man. You see a poor man. You see the people who are killing Jesus. And then you see tax collectors. There is no prejudice. All of them. God forgives all of them without partiality. Like I said, biblically speaking, there's no, like, worse sin, right? But culturally, I get it that we kind of feel like there is. And there kind of is, right? I mean, there's certain things that are, like, almost unspeakable. You know, the, you know the stuff that I'm talking about. Even those sins, God forgives. Even the ones that hurt other people. Even the ones that hurt innocent people. That's how powerful the cross is. And that's how liberal the forgiveness of God is. God forgives us completely without prejudice. There are certain things that honestly, to me, seem unforgivable. But when I remember the cross and I remember the, the copious kindness of God towards me and I remember how God has forgiven me, I know then that I can forgive even those things that seem unforgivable. 
I would like to humbly ask those of you who have had such horrific things done to them that they, it seems unforgivable, that you would consider how you have been forgiven, that you would consider to forgive because you have been forgiven. Listen, and as a friend, I need to tell you that as just as it may seem to keep holding that person in contempt, you holding on to that is only hurting yourself. Notice, notice who ends up tortured at the end of the story. It's not the slave who owed the other slave. It's the slave who wouldn't forgive who ends up being tortured at the end of the story. And maybe, just submitting this to you, that after you forgive, you might need to go to that person and just say to them, I release you. I forgive you. That's not always the best case. A lot of cases that's not. But I just want to submit to you that maybe, maybe that God wants to use that. That could be an important step in your healing. Listen, you deserve to be free. I want you to be free. It's been said that holding grudges or refusing to forgive someone is like you drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. The other thing that is noteworthy about God and how God forgives us is that he does it freely. Forgiveness is free and without expectation. In other words, God's, God's, God's forgiveness is not contingent on us doing anything or performing in any certain way. This slave didn't do anything to earn this forgiveness. He was just forgiven. And such is the case with God. Now, do we need to respond to God's forgiveness in order to reap all of the benefits of forgiveness? Yes. But the point is, God did all that needed to be done for us to be forgiven before we ever recognized, admitted, or repented of our sin. You remember when Jesus was on the cross? What was one of the last things he said there? He said, Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. The people who were crucifying him while they were in their sin killing the son of God. Jesus is dying so that they can be forgiven. Jesus is doing all that needed to be done so they can be forgiven while they're in their sin and totally unrepentant. That's insane. And some of us say, dude, people like that don't deserve to be forgiven. And you know what? You're right. They don't deserve to be forgiven. And there's people in your life who don't deserve to be forgiven. But you know what else? Before God, neither do I. And neither do you. But because of God's great mercy, because of his great love for us, he forgives us. And because we've been forgiven like that, now we can forgive like that. Like John Piper says, keep being more amazed that your wrongs are forgiven than that you are wronged. And yet, even after all of this trying to see how greatly we have been forgiven, some of us will still leave the room today and make a conscious decision to not forgive. And if that's you, then Jesus has some really harsh words for you. It says in verse 32, and this is where we finish up. It's not a very happy ending. Verse 32, that then summoning him, the slave, his lord, the king, said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. 
Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the tortures until he should repay all that was owed him. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. That's heavy, dude. Church, listen. There is no place in the life of the Christian for unforgiveness. There is no place for bitterness. You have no right to harbor bitterness or even hold grudges. Even just a little thing with your like spouse or boyfriend or girlfriend or friend. There is no right. You have no right. Jesus says here, if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. In other words, not just saying the words, I forgive you, but actually releasing them from your heart then you won't be forgiven by your Father in heaven. This is a gnarly statement here. And therein lies a bit of tension, right? Because if you're a student of the Bible or been walking with Jesus for any time, then you know enough to hear a statement like this and wonder if Jesus is saying what it sounds like he's saying. I mean, the Bible is pretty clear that the cross and resurrection were all the work that needed to be done in order for us to be forgiven by God. But here it almost seems like Jesus is saying, that's true, but there's a stipulation. If you don't forgive others, then forgiveness, your forgiveness is off the table. As if God forgiving you is contingent, not just contingent rather, on Jesus dying and rising from the dead, but it's also contingent on you forgiving others. That's what it sounds like Jesus means. So is that what it means? Well, yes and no. To answer that question, we have to look into the account of all of Scripture. You can't create doctrines based on single verses. That's not uh, biblically sound. But you also can't just ignore other verses because they make you uncomfortable. But when we take into account all of Scripture, it seems that the point that Jesus is making is this. If you are a true follower of Jesus, then you will forgive others. Just like if you're a real avocado tree, you will produce avocados. If you really are a born again child of God, then forgiving others will be part of the fruit of your life, period. But if you are okay with living with unforgiveness and bitterness in your heart, and you are unwilling to release a person or people of their debts against you, if you are unwilling to produce that fruit in your life, then maybe you're not actually a follower of Jesus. And Jesus is saying that in that, you are pronouncing your own judgment on yourself. And that verse, that last verse is for you. But I got good news for you. Today, God is calling you into a relationship with him. God is calling you to come in and really experience for real the mercy of God. Maybe you've just been, you thought you, man, you've been coming to church. You call yourself a Christian. You're like, yeah, dude, I follow Jesus. I try to obey everything he does. But you are unwilling to re- uh, forgive people, unwilling to release them of their debts against you. Then maybe you're not a true follower of Jesus. But the good news is, man, you can come to Jesus today. You could come to today and say, Lord, I, I thought I, I, no, I need a new heart. I thought I had one. I need a new heart. I don't know. Maybe I'm not born again, but Lord, here I am. I'm coming right now. I'm stepping in right now. And for those of you who are followers of Jesus, guys, this isn't up for discussion. 
This is not up for discussion. You must forgive those who have sinned against you from your heart. There might be somebody in this room today that you need to forgive. You just need to do it. Today, you need to do it. Listen, if I've sinned against you, come tell me. I'm going to be sitting right there for the first couple of songs. Hopefully there's not a line lined up, right? If I've sinned against you, come tell me. I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I've sinned against you. Tell me. Please forgive me. You have to make that right, Christian. I want us to think upon these three things as we move into response time in the second set of worship. Number one, I want us to remember how indebted to God we were. Pray that God would help us see that. Number two, I want us to remember how forgiven by God we have been. The Lord would help us to see that. Number three, I want us to recognize how desperately we need the power of God in order to forgive as we have been forgiven. Lord, we need you to open our eyes. Open our eyes, Lord, to see that we are the slave in this story. To see how desperate, desperately indebted we were and how greatly we have been forgiven. And Lord, we need help. Lord, we just need help. This is the work of forgiving others is so hard. Would you please help us, Lord? Guys, during this second set of worship, um, there's going to be prayer team on the right and the left up toward the front of the room. And Christian, if you need help, just come ask him. Just say, dude, I'm, I need help. Can you please pray for me? I just need help. This is so hard. I need the power of God. And if you're not yet a Christian today, you've recognized that you're a sinner. And you want to follow Jesus. You need mercy. You need this compassion of God. Come tell one of these people. Come tell the prayer team. Just come tell them. Or the person who invited you, just tell them today. The carpets are here for us to take a a posture of humility and dependence before God, getting on our faces, saying, Lord, I need you. Or maybe repenting and saying, Lord, have mercy on me. And communion is here for the Christian, for those who have trusted in Jesus to remember what he did for them on the cross and how greatly we have been forgiven. But there is one condition with communion. You look at the book of Matthew, you look at 2 Corinthians, and if you've got unforgiveness in your heart towards somebody else, you need to deal with that first. Or if your brother has sinned against you, you need to go talk to them. Or your sister, talk to them before you come and partake of communion and before you come and offer your sacrifice of praise. So right now, if they're not here, that's all right. If you, if you don't need to talk to them, you just need to do it with God. You need to release that. You have to do that. Christian, do that. You have to do that before you bring your, your sacrifice of praise, before you enter into a place of worship. You need to release that. For me, I have to today still forgive people that 
I thought I forgave a year ago. Because it tries to come back up and take a root of bitterness in my heart. Today, during the first service, I had to sit here and say to that person in my mind, so-and-so, I forgive you. I forgive you. Again, in my mind, in my heart, I would encourage you to do the same. There's power. There's power. When you say, even just out loud, even if they're not in front of you, if they can't be in front of you, you say to them, so-and-so, I forgive you. Because I've been forgiven, I forgive you.